to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber-DeGraff. I'm an astrophysicist at Western Washington University, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you because our guest is an amazing rap artist, producer, and PhD candidate. Her stage name is Samus, and we first met at Geek Girl Con in season three. By the time the show airs, she will be Dr. Samus, or Dr. Anango Umumba Kasango. Anango performed at Western Washington University last November, and she agreed to call in, which explains the audio quality. We talked about her doctorate in science and technology studies at Cornell University, and we also talked about her exciting journey as an up-and-coming music artist. You've been, you know, a musician, you've been making your own beats, you've been producing your own beats and traveling around, but as you've been doing that, you've been finishing this PhD program. So tell us a little bit about the program. Okay. And and then what your topic, your thesis, your dissertation is going to be on. Okay, great. So STS, which is Science and Technology Studies, is this uh, incredible interdisciplinary field in which you have anthropologists, sociologists, information science folks, engineers, all coming together to ask questions about how science and technology work, but not necessarily from a design perspective, uh, as, although that's part of it. A lot of these questions have to do with what social theories and ideas are embedded in the technologies we use and the science that we think about. Um, so it's asking these really interesting questions of us because we often assume that science and technology are sort of infallible, it can't be adjusted, and they have no sort of bias that could possibly be built into the very infrastructure of the thing. These fields kind of trouble that, which I think is really interesting and has for me been an exercise in asking these questions about things that I kind of take for granted. My particular area of research is this field within a field called sound studies. So sound studies thinks about kind of how science, technology, medicine have been integral to the sounds that we hear in the world and how we think about sound, what counts as noise, what counts as music, what kind of um, symbolic values we attach to something like noise or something like sound, kind of the birth of musical instruments, what kind of values are embedded in those things or, or some music studios, which is my particular interest. We're thinking about the kind of values that are embedded in the decisions that audio engineers make, for example. Um, that's something that I would be interested in or other folks in my field are interested in. And, and it probably helps with you making your own beats and you making your own music to kind of reflect on like, where did this all come from? I don't know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think even though I have gone through this this doctoral process, probably kicking and screaming, like most, most of my other <laughs> grad student friends um, that I know of, now that I'm almost on the other side of it, I keep finding ways that actually pursuing this work has really informed my music making practices, being really reflective about what biases are undergirding the way that I think about things. And even trying to peel back those layers has been a part of my songwriting in ways that I don't think I would necessarily have done if I didn't have to spend so much damn time with myself thinking about things and thinking about my process and explaining myself. It's creeped in for better or for worse, my, my kind of um, perspectives that I've gained through working on the PhD. Is there like kind of a secret now, not <laughs> like group that talks about these things that you can kind of relate to? Um, I would say honestly, my my cohort um, 
I would consider folks like you to be in my cohort, people who are kind of trying to cross lots of different worlds and engaged with like public life and public engagement and sort of academic pursuits. A lot of rappers, not maybe not surprisingly, have been teachers um, instructors in some way. So a lot, and a lot of them still are instructors while they're, they're doing their rap thing. So in that regard, I've, I feel like I've always had peers that I can kind of whine about, like I'll be on tour and be grading and, and have folks who kind of can commiserate with me about how sucky that can be sometimes. So that's really nice. Um, but as far as like the kind of doctoral work, I'm finding more folks who are doing, who are like straddling lots of different universes. It's not necessarily in music, but it is, um, you know, in podcasting or um, in fashion or every day somebody um, kind of pings me on Twitter, or Instagram, like, hey, this person's working on a doctorate and they're doing X, Y, Z. And so it's really encouraged me to feel like what I'm doing is possible um, and that it can encourage other folks to keep um, searching for whatever it is that interests them beyond sort of the four walls of the academy. You gave me an awesome segue because you were involved in something that was called um, Decolonizing Mars. And it was yeah. an unconference because it was a, a conference that was set, put together that was not um, traditional like any other conference you've been at. And I really mm -hmm. like that in at that unconference, there was a lot of people who were straddling those two worlds. So mm -hmm. could you kind of talk a little bit about what decolonizing Mars was about and who was there and what'd you do? Yeah, so at first I was like, why am I being invited to this? Like, I do not belong there. You know, I study sound studies and I'm, you know, a rapper producer, but I don't know what I have to add to this really interesting, fascinating conversation about, um, you know, potentially going to Mars at some point or Mars exploration generally. But once I got there, I totally realized why I was a part of the conversation because the kind of basic premise is that our desires to go to Mars or beyond, um, we have to understand those desires and those interests through how we interact on Earth and kind of what the motivations are for a variety of different actors um, and historically, what this desire is embedded in. And so from that perspective, it was like, okay, yeah, when we think about the kinds of worlds that we want to create, kind of future universes, we need everybody here. We need musicians, we need teachers, we need legal scholars, we need farmers, we need people who are coming into this from different perspectives. So that was one of the main kind of conceits was asking us to think about, use our ideas about what it would take to get to Mars, to think about how we can change how we're thinking about life on Earth. Um, so one of the major threads that came out of that for me was a lot of, there were a lot of questions and comments around what constitutes disability, which I thought was really interesting um, in regards to um, how disability is engaged or not engaged on Earth and how we think about who would actually be ideal for space travel and that, that the kinds of bodies that we valorize here on earth as being normal or, or um, good or strong or healthy wouldn't necessarily be the same bodies that would have those same kind of qualifiers in space. So it really asked us to question the assumptions and images that were sort of fed around who has the right stuff. And that those that conversation is part of a bigger conversation around like science and math, for example, who has the right stuff there, who has the right stuff to contribute um, intellectually. And, and so it really, I think, got me going and thinking about 
you know, how I think about those things in my own life. And the last thing that was really interesting to me was a conversation about the language and metaphors that we use for talking about space travel. So for example, you know, we talk about colonization, about colonies, settlements, and that each of these words is totally loaded with histories that exist even outside of humanness. Lots of fun stuff, lots of cool people from so many backgrounds. Yeah, and, and I, I really suggest for our readers to kind of go look into that, look into the decolonizing Mars. There's a website that explains who was there, who taught. There were psychologists there. I really, I think it's funny that you're like, why did they pick me? But what I took away from that website of decolonizing Mars is that our urge to go to Mars is steeped in this language, like you said, that of colonization, of what is a civilization and what isn't a civilization. Right. If right. we start a new civilization on Mars, who gets to be the boss? Mm-hmm. Who gets to relative to their own culture? Like, yeah. you know, and, and so I, I think it's super, super interesting. And I think that I didn't really ask these questions before I was sort of invited to have the conversations. I know that I, you know, it's like, it's space travel. It's cool. Every minute I'm promised I give it a hundred percent. I don't get it, you pause that proficient A hundred percent If you bring it, then all is forgiven A hundred percent You should visit my block cause I'm living we are talking with rap artist and science and technology scholar Anango Lumumba Kasango about academia, making music, and life. You eventually kind of got into this field of science technology, I'm assuming, because there's some part of you that really has an affinity for science and technology. So can yeah. you kind of share with us anything you feel comfortable about, like sparks of interest when you were younger? When I was younger, my sort of engagement through that was mostly like video games. Like I love video games. I love playing them. I love listening to their music. And through their music, I um, started producing music, started producing my own music. And I think that really helped me to move past the barrier that I think a lot of other folks around my age had with engaging with a computer, for example. Um, I think that I, because I was so excited about making music, I didn't care if I was bad at it. I didn't care if I didn't have all of the tools or if I didn't have the manual. It just was like, okay, you'll figure it out. You'll figure out what sounds good. Um, and that was really special to me because I think in sort of every other part of my life, I've been really like regimented and very kind of structured. And so that was like the one area where it was like, okay, you can do whatever you want. And I'm really, really excited by that because it taught me to just try things out and troubleshoot and play with stuff and pull all the knobs to the left and see what happens, pull all the knobs to the right and see what happens. Um, So that I think was the first real sparks of me engaging with ideas around um, kind of what technology uh, can mean and can do. And then in undergrad, when I took a course on science and technology studies, one of the things that we talked about was the Moog synthesizer, which is like one of the, the first, you know, uh, popular synthesizer models. And I think at that moment, it was like, okay, I want to, I'm like fully invested in this field because it was like, oh, you can think about music in ways that extend beyond sort of music theory, which is interesting, of course, but you can think about the science and tech that's a part of sound, sonic universes, the the science that that shapes how we engage with um, 
you know, equalization or other processes that, that shape the, the mix of a song. Um, and so it really, I think music is what has enabled me to really feel comfortable in some of these spaces that initially, or in other parts of my life, I don't know that I would necessarily have experimented with, which is a shame. Um, I remember teaching uh, third and fourth grade math and science to, I had two classes. I had a, um, a class that was like a young boys and then I had a class of, of young girls. And I remember, you know, they were maybe nine years old and already so many of the young girls were saying to me, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I'm not good at this. And it just really, really crushed me because it was like, you're so young. You're so young. Like, where is this coming from? You know? And so it really made me at that moment, you know, a want to feel, feel glad that I was at the you know, front of the classroom to be able to say, well, obviously you can do this, but also it made me really grateful that I had people in my life who pushed me to, you know, just keep doing my own thing and not sort of question my own um, validity to be in that space. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, you started doing um, your music and making your beats. It started as like kind of game related, but then it evolved. Did you kind of feel that way that you needed those parameters to start and then you kind of became more you let yourself become more I don't know or show more well I think actually what ended up happening was I started to feel self-conscious about the the video game music that I had made you get to a certain age and you're you're just so self-conscious of whether you're doing weird stuff and you haven't realized yet that doing the weird stuff is actually the best part of being a person and so I, I showed that music to my friends, I remember, and for the most part, they were kind of confused. Like, so you're making video game music for a video game that doesn't exist? Like, what is, like <laughs> what's going on here? So at some point I just was like, okay, well, I, I had heard Kanye West for the first time and I loved the way that he produced beats. I loved what he was kind of talking about, having anxieties about going to college. And I was just about to go to college. So it was like, oh my God, I, I'm like, I can participate in this world. And so I think at that point, I sort of shifted gears to something that was probably more legible to other folks, but there were still hints of the kind of video gamey aspect of what I, what I had done before. Um, but I think if I could go back to old me, I would, I would tell her like, keep doing your weird stuff. Like just follow that trajectory, see where it goes. Like you don't have to conform to anybody. And in 10 years, like everyone's going to be looking at the weirdo to be like, oh my gosh, you, we should have been <laughs> paying attention to you this whole time, you know, so. <laughs> I'm kind of scared at the academy. I think that my parents are proud of me. I just wish I knew how to be comfortable here. I never feel like I'm allowed to breathe. Rubbing shoulders with these old nerds. Rocking sweater vests in their office hours. Eating hors d'oeuvres while I soul search. Trying to make some sense of the ivory tower. Feeling sober. Am I just a coward or a poser? We are back with Dr. Lumumba Kasango, who performs as Samus about the science of sound. What are the similarities between that kind of isolation in music and that kind of isolation in academia because I know there's got to be similarities and got to be differences and like you know what do we need to warn people about <laughs> so <laughs> let me like pull up a chair yeah. so one thing I talked a lot about this weekend is this myth that I think I've encountered mostly in my music work but I'm realizing is a part of academia as well 
is the myth that there can only be one. Mm -hmm. um, and often that means only one woman, only one woman of color, only one person from a particular, um, you know, group that, you know, someone who has a lot of different identity points that can be marginalized. And part of that is like recruitment. So you might actually be the only one in your department. Um, but then another part of that is the language and, and kind of conversation around that particular person as them sort of representing all of the different things that they're a part of, every identity point, having to, you know, I'm sure you can relate so deeply to this, going to every meeting for every single thing that has to do with a part of who you are. Whereas your colleagues, white men, you know, they go to the department meeting and that is the meeting that they go to, you know? And so I think that kind of exhaustion around trying to being stretched really thin and feeling like the weight of the, you're the, you can be the only one syndrome um, is definitely something in academia. And in the music world, I think it manifests as like um, competition that's, that's actively sort of like stoked by publications and by even sometimes well-meaning supporters. Um, and the example I kind of go back to a lot is that um, this past whatever, two weeks ago, Cardi B, she won a Grammy, her first Grammy. And so BT tweeted at the same time that they congratulated her for her Grammy, they were kind of clown Nicki Minaj in the same breath. Mm -hmm. And it was like this moment where in, in real time, we're sort of seeing what the industry does, which is say, only one of you can exist. <laughs> only one of you will, will, right, will have our support. Um, and which is, so ridiculous because it's like they both have millions of supporters and love. Why are we acting or why are they acting like one person is replacing the other? And I think part of that also has to do with like ageism and all of these other things that are that are kind of part of the of music industries. So you can't take risks. You can't, um, you know, be too loud or to do too much or you risk having that position sort of knocked out. Um, and then the, the other thing I would say that the other similarity that I've found is um, that often our particular forms of expertise are not considered to be <laughs> uh, valid or legitimate in the same way. And in the music industry, it's like coming from the perspective of being a woman, I feel like my work or my ideas are always qualified. They're constantly qualified. Like, you know, nobody that I know is like, wow, this person's my favorite male rapper or my favorite male MC. I literally have never heard that wording. And yet anytime anybody, you know, engages with my stuff, there's often this qualifier. And I think, you know, it's complicated because obviously being a woman is important to me and is a part of my music, but it's often said in this way that's not saying, oh, this is a really important part of your identity. It's just like, let's just throw the qualifier on there just to, to demarcate, um, you know, or, or kind of throw in a, this umbrella term on you to kind of generalize about who you are and what you're about. And I feel like that often kind of happens in the academy as well. I so really that, liked what you said about um, like the Kari B and Nicki Minaj thing, because um, this happened in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is one of my favorite shows. I don't, I talked about this in the past. Yeah. <laughs> There's two Latina actresses and one, they know each other because, you know, Hollywood's small. And one of them got the role, got a role on Brooklyn Nine-Nine when they were casting. And what they didn't know is that that show tried very, very hard to be 
legitimate and like looked at the demographics of um, the Brooklyn Police Department and tried to be actually accurate. Mm-hmm. So they hired both the, mm-hmm. the actresses and one of them got the call first. So she called her friend was like, I got the role. I'm sorry. And then they were both sad. And then they found out the other woman <laughs> also got the job and they're like, how did, how did they hire both of us? And they were like right. celebrating. And I think that yeah. this is a, that's a good story, but it, it, it's a d- divide and conquer. Yeah. Right? And it's a, it's a strategy that people are, might even be using subconsciously mm-hmm. to maintain the status quo, right? Like, if there's only one, it's this quota mentality that they're always scared and they have to perform their best. And if somebody else comes in, then they have to perform even better because, and then they, then they become feel threatened, right? Like it's happened to me where there's been other people doing inclusion work. I'm like, Oh my God, is my job safe? Mm -hmm. Because I think that this new person is incompetent or I dislike them, but I'm worried about my position. Twitter slash the internet have been a saving grace for me in both regards um, in terms of finding people who to commiserate with, to, to just realize that I'm not nuts. Um, And I think at first I I kind of used Twitter or, or my online presence really focused around music stuff, but increasingly and especially as I'm like hate tweeting my my dissertation (laughs) um, more and more folks more and more academics and other people from from different fields um, people of color and um, have have kind of followed me and I follow them and we share stories and it's just made me realize that like yeah you know often our departments um, can feel really limiting but there are connections that can be made outside of the department that can give us the kind of joy or um, just validation that we're not able to find there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to, you because you're talking about your dissertation and, and I mm-hmm. think many people who have <clears throat> been in PhD programs or been in graduate programs where you have to like finish something, it's, yeah. uh, it's like a long slog. Um, mm-hmm. my, friend, my friend and I used to talk about how when you're an undergrad, it, it's like you're on a street and you have a map and you know exactly where you're going and all the street lights are on. Right. Um, but then you go into your master's and it's like some of the street lights turned off, right. like, <laughs> you know, and then when you go into your PhD, they took the map away and there's no lights. Right. <laughs> you have no Talks idea. Of like a moving vehicle into a, you know. A <laughs> yeah, blackness. You have, you have no, like, it's dark. You can't see anything. Yeah. It's yeah. just like they're there's no roads. Um, you have no idea where what's yeah. happening. And I think when I got towards the end of my dissertation, you get kind of really exhausted. And yeah. so what has changed over these, like that your dissertation has basically done to you as you go through? Yeah. Right. When I came into graduate school, I think so much of my identity was premised, like I said, on doing well, on being like a smarty pants and having the right answers. And I think once I was, was, after my first semester, I was like, oh no, you know, A, I'm not the smartest person here at all. And B, this isn't super interesting to me, right? Like I'm just, it's cold and snowy and I don't want to be doing this. And I, you know, I was dealing with all of these emotions and sort of feelings and and even physiological responses that I had never dealt with in regards to school. I always had, school had always been in times of craziness. It's like, well, at least I can get the A. And like you said, there's no roadmap, right? There's no lights. So 
this is my first time sitting in classes where the professor is just sort of like, okay, you turn in one paper at the end where you analyze this, 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 and this, and we'll see where we go from there, you know? And, yeah. and I want to be told what to do. So I'm like, oh my God, you know, how do I do this on the third? So, and then as I moved on or, or kind of was invested in music and met with so many different people's activists, organizers, and um, met friends outside of the academy or people who were in the academy doing interesting things, I just realized there's so many forms of intelligence. There's so many different ways to communicate and to, to, um, to share your ideas with the world. And it's weird because once I realized that, then I could actually work on the dissertation. I think that I couldn't work on it before because I felt like this is my magnum opus. If I screw this up, you know, like I, <laughs> I don't know what, what I'll do or who I'll be. But once I realized it's like, here is the contribution in the same vein as an album or a podcast or, you know, any of these kind of forms of expression, then it was like, okay, I know how to write a song. I know how to write a sentence. I know how to formulate thoughts. Let me just do that and do that about this particular subject. But I think now um, I'm more comfortable speaking in my voice, like utilizing my voice or the way that I actually talk and think about things in my, my writings. And no, it doesn't mean being super informal, but I think it does mean not sort of masking what I'm saying using this big word or that big word or this phrasing or this, you know, framework when I could just say it in plain speak in the way that I would want, you know, a friend of mine to be able to read the thing or to access it. And it almost ties into, I think, kind of the work that you and your colleagues are doing around science communication and, and having things be accessible to people. I think that's the, the major realization that I've come to in the academies that I want my work to be accessible. And I feel like any work that is like intentionally obscuring or inaccessible is not anything that I want to have any parts of. And so that's been a weight lifted off my shoulder. Um, so yeah. <laughs> that was so beautiful. I want to thank you for taking this time to actually talk with me and- yes. We'd like to thank Samus, now Dr. Anango Lumumba Kasango, for taking the time to talk to us while finishing her dissertation. Thank you to Samus for the two songs featured in the show, 100% and 1080p. Check out her work at samusmusic.com. That's S-A-M-M-U-S music.com. Spark Science is sponsored by WWU and created in partnership with KMRE. Spark Science is recorded on location and in Bellingham, Washington. Western Washington University. The producers are Suzanne Blaze, Regina Barbara DeGraff, and Robert Clark. Student editors are Julia Thorpe, Andrew Norton, and Sarah Coakley. Additional editing is done by WWU Video Services. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page or tweet us at SparkScienceNow. Thanks for joining us, and if you want to listen to past episodes, visit SparkScienceNow.com. 